1: I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll get an insider's view of the latest 10-year federal budget projections from the Congressional Budget Office. Our guest for this segment is Jeff Holland, who's vice president uh, for research at the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. Before joining the Peterson Foundation, Jeff was the chief of the projections unit at the Congressional Budget Office. And then later in the program, we'll turn to health care and specifically the brewing controversy over proposed changes in Medicare Advantage. Our guest for that segment is Josh Gordon, director of health policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and, by the way, former policy director of the Concord Coalition. So let's first get back to the stunning new 10-year budget and economic outlook released by the CBO on February 15th, projecting annual average deficits of $2 trillion over the next 10 years. Our guest is Jeff Holland, Vice President for Research at the Peterson Foundation. And prior to joining that foundation in 2017, Jeff spent 26 years at the CBO, Uh, where he was chief of the projections unit, and he was responsible for uh, overseeing data uh, production and compilation for CBO's publications, including things like the annual uh, Budget and Economic Outlook. Concord Coalition chief economist Steve Robinson joins me for this conversation. Jeff and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Thanks, Bob. It's nice
2: to be here. It's nice to see both of you.
1: Yeah, good to see you again. Well, uh, CBO issued its latest version of the budget and economic outlook uh, on February 15th. And, uh, you know, last week on this show, we discussed uh, some of the contours of that uh, report with CBO director Phil Swiggle. I think it's fair to say that the uh, CBO baseline was something of a gut punch to a lot of people. Uh, uh, You know, Jeff it, it the thing that just like stuck out to me in blaring lights was it averages two trillion in deficits over the next 10 years, which is really astounding. Did when you were chief of the projections unit, did you ever think you'd see deficit projections that high? Uh,
2: no, I didn't. I wasn't even sure I'd see a trillion dollars. That seemed out of the question. Um, yeah. And, you know, even as a percent of GDP, these deficits, you know, they're getting to 6% and more. Um, that's, uh, those are numbers that, yeah, that I didn't see for most of the, my, my periods other than the Great Recession.
1: That's, uh, you know, one way of thinking about this that came to my mind is that the deficits as a percentage of GDP, as you're talking about, um, it, it, they're, they're really associated with things that you think of with a major war or a major economic calamity or something. And what frightens the heck out of me in this baseline is that, you know, CBO isn't projecting that the Ukraine war is going to turn into World War Three, and we're not predicting another Great Recession or Great Depression. And yet, that's the level of deficits that we have.
2: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's true. You know, large deficits are associated with, relatively temporary things like wars and large recessions before. And now it's just based on the structural imbalance that exists in our federal budget. You know, we uh, outlays are outstripping revenues, you know, basically because of uh, the de- demographics, which affects social security, and Medicare, um, rising healthcare costs, which affects care programs in federal budget, like Medicare, Medicaid, to some extent, um, and, and growing interest costs, of course, because of the rising debt. Um, you know, uh, matched up with revenues that are insufficient to meet the um, the promises that we've made.
1: Did anything surprise you as a former chief of the projections unit? Did anything jump out as surprising to you from the, the new baseline?
2: Well, I think the overall trends weren't a surprise. Like, as I said, the structural imbalance has existed for years. It's well documented. The demographics are clear, as are the other pieces. Um, and we knew that you know, interest costs would rise substantially based on what's been going on with the, the Fed recently and, and longer term rates as well. But there were a couple of things that, that surprised me. Um, again, just looking into some of the details. Um, one, uh, one was that this year's deficit is expected to be larger than last year's. Um, and I would have expected last year's to be larger because it included that really large, nearly $400 billion adjustment based on the student loan forgiveness program that the administration put in place. So I thought, well, that won't be recorded again this year. Deficit should be lower, but it turns out that it's actually projected to be a little higher. Um, And there were a number of reasons for that, um, including uh, lower remittances from the Federal Reserve uh, based on the current interest rate situation, um, the lack of some receipts from Spectrum auctions, uh, more spending for the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, um, large increases in spending for um, Social Security and Medicare, although Medicare was sort of related to some pandemic programs. Um, And uh, yeah, and an expectation of GDP growth this year that will be quite low. Um, So, I mean, I thought last year's $1.4 trillion deficit uh, result was extremely high. I was hoping we'd have a couple of years of brilliant or maybe a little lower deficits, you know, to give us time to kind of regroup. But apparently that's not going to be the case.
1: You know, I said something like that to Tori last year on the show, and she said, Bob, think about what you just said. You're talking about, you know, a trillion dollar deficit as being a reprieve, just kind of like, you know, let's, <laughs> uh, you know, we'll have a couple of years of those low trillion dollar deficits before things really get out of hand.
2: Uh, yeah, time, times have changed.
1: Um, yeah, it does feel it.
2: funny to be saying that trillion dollars is on the low end of what we're expecting. But um, yeah, but we're not even getting that. Uh, they expect another, you know, one point four trillion dollar deficit this year.
1: Uh, Steve, so, do you want to jump
2: in?
0: Yeah, yeah I was just—we're talking trillion dollars. So, so when I started on Capitol Hill back in 1985, the entire federal budget. Was less than a trillion dollars, <laughs> and here we are today. You know, thirty-five years later, roughly, and now we're saying the deficit is more than a trillion dollars. And I mean, it's just—it's really almost hard to believe. But uh, yeah. So, so, Jeff, you were mentioning interest rates, and you know, I've, I've been perplexed for the last year and a half. I mean, if you look historically, whenever inflation gets as high as it has been. Uh, both short term and long term interest rates rise usually they rise up roughly to the level of the inflation rate so you you go from you know negative interest rates because inflation rises first and then interest rates catch up and they usually peak at about the same point and then they'll start coming down and you know i noticed both in the baseline and of course you know you look at the financial markets and the futures and those sorts of things and you know everybody seems to think that while short term rates have indeed Come up. I mean, they're still less than five percent. But long-term rates in both CBO's projections and in, in terms of where the market is right now, though long-term rates, for example, in the ten-year uh, treasuries, continue to stay down below four percent. I mean, what's going on? I mean, what, are, are we going to have negative long-term interest rates? You know, for for the for the foreseeable future? I mean, what? It just seems a little odd.
2: Yeah, I mean, it feels like it's all based on expectations. I think The Economist wrote an article about this a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, and that the um, current interest rates are somewhat forward-looking, and it seems like markets expect inflation to come back down, um, you know, I guess hopefully into the 2% range. And so if you have 10-year Treasury rates at 4% and inflation at 2% or so, then you've got a 2% real rate, and that, that. you know, so that wouldn't be a negative real rate. Um, You know, the question is whether people are being too sanguine or not. Uh, um, I I mean, I hope that that's correct. I hope CBO's projection of, you know, somewhat higher short-term rates now and then coming back down to go along with inflation that moderates and then comes back down, um, you know, over their 10-year horizon or over the next couple of years, really. Um, I I hope that's right. Um, But it does seem like there's a fair amount of money out there that's that's willing to be invested in treasury securities and a belief that treasury securities are still safe, That limit, conflict aside. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, maybe it's not unreasonable. 4%, I think historically still is relatively low, but it feels high because tenure rates have been so much lower than that recently. Well,
0: when um, when rates are zero for, uh, you know, almost a decade, it's, yeah, it's surprising.
2: Yeah, so both on the short and the long end. So, yeah, um, anyway, so I feel like, people expect like sort of a reversion back to, you know, back to sort of the norm and that, um, that generates, you know, some more consistent interest rate and inflation expectations.
0: But then that, that suggests how much worse things could get if in fact inflation and interest rates don't stabilize at a lower level. I mean, given the interest cost on the debt and how large the debt is, I mean, that, that could literally compound and, and just be, you know, extremely problematic going forward.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I mean, and you can see it in this baseline, right? CBO just in essentially raising rates over a short, a relatively short period, you know, over a few years, added a trillion dollars or so to the 10-year horizon for um, for interest payments for the federal budget. So yeah, if they stay higher, if short-term rates stay higher longer, if long-term rates go up above the, 3.8, 3.9% they're expecting. Yeah, things look even worse and, you know, that can crowd out other priorities within the budget or it implies a rising debt, of course, which could crowd out private investment.
0: So um, why why do you think, I mean, you mentioned the rising deficits and debts crowding out private investment, I mean, you know, economists not all economists, but many economists have been complaining for years about the dangers to the economy of rising deficits and debt. And yet, you know, here we are at at levels of debt that many people thought, you know, inconceivable a decade ago. And yet none of the awful, terrible things that that have been discussed have have come to pass. I mean, you know, are we just lucky we've dodged the bullet? Or, you know, I mean, what's sort of the explanation of why things aren't perhaps worse than than they are, or they appear to be.
2: <laughs> well, this is the conundrum for us at the Pierce <laughs> Foundation, where we've been concerned about this, is as if you all at the Concord Coalition for a long time. And um, yeah, you know, the Armageddon hasn't come to pass, thankfully. Um, you know, I think some of it may be just a comparison, you know, like bringing our debt to GDP level up to 100% isn't great, but we still may be a better option than securities that you get from other places, other countries, other regions, and so on. Um, so maybe, maybe again, we look there in comparison. It also does seem like there's a really large pool of money that needs a place to go if the US consider, is still considered safe, which I believe it is, um, then you can be confident that investing in treasury security will get you back your principal and some interest as well. Um, so, so I think that those are factors. That that term premium, I think, had come down quite a bit with all the, you know, after the Great Recession, during the pandemic, um, you know, given other things that are going on in the world. Um, CBO has it coming back up temporarily and then kind of receding, it, you know, and then sort of dropping a little bit again. So I think you know there's still Treasury securities could still be attractive at at low interest rates. Um, But what's what's not clear is where that tipping point is. So, again, you know, when we all first got started, we probably thought 100% was above the tipping point or maybe at it. It's a nice round number. But, um, you know, we're about there right now. That's GDP. Um, And there's there's no indication that any tipping is about to happen. Um, So, yeah, but, you know, is it 120% of GDP? Is it, you know... is it what happens when we exceed the previous high, you know, of 109% or so? So that's slated to happen in CBS projections in 2028. Um Is it something much higher? Um, We don't know. And when the tipping happens, it could happen quite quickly. And that's that's the risk that we don't really want to take.
0: It, it's the old saying that everything's great until it isn't.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And we won't have... It's too far to find out if we want to test those limits I and mean, not limits, but I mean, it's, you know, you mentioned 120% of GDP. Well, we'll get that in about 10 years by the end of this baseline. And, 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 you know, close to 200% within 30 years. So it's, it's uh, you know, if I were 30 instead of the age I am that that could be a little bit uh, uh, <laughs> problematic. I mean, that's, You know, I mean, it's got to have some negative effect on long-term growth and certainly on, uh, you know, the effect that the budget would have, certainly with revenues and uh, squeezing out other programs. Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. I mean, there is a sort of generational unfairness, it feels like, behind all of this. Um, You know, the current generation was able to borrow current generation or past, you know, sort of future ones have been able to borrow sort of at will, but it limits the choices of of those further into the future, um, you know, not just for the federal budget, but as you said, you know, maybe it has some slowdown effect on the economy. You know, CBO assumes that rising debt to GDP ratios mean pre- interest rates will creep up. You know, that has effect for people who want to borrow for a mortgage or a car or something like that. Um, yeah so it feels like there is some generational inequity there too that um you know would benefit from a, from some addressing of the trajectory of the deficit and that
1: yeah, it limits choices also I mean you know we get because of the the budget being dominated as you said by you know the major benefit programs uh, as they get larger and larger and the deficits get bigger and bigger, it becomes harder to fund uh, discretionary spending, which is one of the things that gets me about the baseline that I think is often overlooked is that, you know, if you look at discretionary spending, that that is actually projected to shrink as a share of GDP. Uh, it doesn't always do that, but I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's, and it's much smaller now as a share of GDP and a share as a budget than it. Used to be when, uh, say, Steve was starting on Capitol Hill uh, 35 years ago. I mean, and and a lot of times the fights are over discretionary spending, you know, the annual appropriations bills and a few billion dollars here and there. Not that that's small change, but the dynamic is, you know, discretionary spending isn't part of the problem.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's the easiest target because it needs to be revisited every year so. Um, there's an opportunity to to restrain it, um, whereas there's not as much opportunity to restrain programs whose benefit um, distributions are built into current law. Um, but the thing about discretionary spending is it's often where a lot of the investment is. And so a lot of the borrowing we're doing, of course, is for consumption, um, you know, paying benefits for social security or other things that are happening right now, but are not necessarily long-term investments like you get in from, like say infrastructure research and development education things like that and those tend to fall on the discretionary side and you know it's tended to be a relatively small part of the budget you know maybe what two and a half percent of gdp or something like that so our interest bill will be more than that very soon um so yeah i mean the discretionary is easier target but yeah it's i don't know but. What was that bank, that bank robber's name, Willie Sutton or whatever they asked? Yeah, him yeah. <laughs> he said, That's where the money is. Um, you know, the money on the spending side of the budget is in, well, you know, the largest program, Social Security, Medicare. Um, and they're the fast, you know, among the fastest growing ones as well. Uh, so, you know, I mean, but we have a choice to make, right? We could fund those programs at their current levels, but we would then need to raise money to somehow do so. To make the fiscal trajectory look better. So I mean, there's a choice. I mean, you don't it's cutting spend. I I don't want to make it sound like cutting spending is the only option. You could raise revenues and continue programs sort of closer to their current levels. But right now we're we've sort of chosen higher spending and lower revenues, and that's you know what's causing that structural imbalance.
1: Yeah. And it's I don't want to uh, pretend that uh, discretionary spending, you can't get savings from it. You, you know, there's certainly, you know, that's where the investment is. That's certainly where a lot of the waste is that people want to chase after too. Um, it's just that, uh, and and discretionary spending does include defense. And if you look at the budget, it, while we're spending a lot on defense about 800 billion Uh, about the same as we spend on Medicare, it's uh, not projected to grow anywhere near as fast. Right. Uh, We're going to have to uh, end uh, this segment. Uh, Jeff, we're happy that you were able to join us. Um, We're going to take a a quick break and then Steve Robinson and I will be back. We've been speaking with Jeff Holland, vice president of research at the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, former chief of the projections unit at the Congressional Budget Office. We'll be right back after these short messages. (laughs) Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. We're going to turn now to healthcare and specifically its role in the federal budget. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman is joining me, and our guest is Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy for the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, where he leads uh, the CRFB's Health Savers Initiative, and they work to identify proposals to make healthcare more affordable. So first, just kind of remind our listeners approximately what what healthcare means to the federal budget. I mean, we just had a new baseline uh, put out. We've been talking about that for uh, the last couple of episodes about how bad it is. But you know, programmatically, healthcare is a big part of the the budget and the challenge going forward.
3: Yeah, I mean, the the basics uh, are that if you look over the next thirty years, total spending for the federal government is going to go from about 25% of GDP uh, in 2033, the end of the current CBO baseline, to about 30% in 2053. So those 20 years, you're going to get this increase of about 5% of total spending GDP. And about 3% of that is just Medicare. And then some more percent of that is the other major government healthcare programs. So really, uh, other than interest on the debt, spending on healthcare programs are the major driver of this increase in spending over, over the longer term. And you know, when I talk about Medicare and we think about that increase in spending, it's driven by the aging of the population, more beneficiaries simply getting healthcare benefits, but also because of the growth of healthcare costs, where healthcare cost inflation tends to grow faster than inflation in the regular economy faster than economic growth. Uh, And so, you have these two problems combining to have this pressure on the budget. And and just to put that 3% increase in perspective, that's about what we spend today on the Defense Department. So, we're like adding an entire new Defense Department onto the federal budget uh, just uh, to pay for these growing healthcare costs. So, that is kind of the general long-term overview. And, And then- there's a shorter term problem where Medicare has a trust fund for its Part A hospital insurance, and that hospital insurance trust fund is going to be uh, insolvent. The CBO projected in 2033, right at the end of their new 10 year baseline, and the Medicare trustee is projected closer to 2028. Uh, and so that'll be uh, an action forcing event where. Uh, something is going to have to be done to prevent that insolvency because if it happens, Medicare spending will be cut by about 10% immediately at that time. And with Medicare, unlike pro- a program like Social Security, we don't actually know what happens when you have that um, forced cut, because um, you can't cut someone's healthcare benefits by 10%. It, it It's a not just a math problem. So you wind up having hospitals, doctors not knowing when they're going to get paid from the federal government, and it really would be a huge problem. So that's uh, those are the kind of two big things that stand out from the CBO report.
1: Every time I turn on television, I mm-hmm. see an ad telling me that I need to contact my legislators and tell them to not cut Medicare, that the Democrats are planning a uh, a huge savage cut to Medicare advantage, and I wonder if you could get into that a little bit. I mean, Medicare Advantage is that part of Medicare that's um, administrated through private plans, and it's become quite popular and this whole question about what constitutes a cut and how these plans are paid and why it's become such a, an enormous political issue. I wonder if you could get into that a little bit.
3: Yeah, let, let me do one kind of preliminary thing to set this debate up, that uh, even in, in the CBO baseline that we just had, um, I'm sure your listeners know by now that spending is going to go up at, at, over the 10 years and it's worse now in this CBO baseline than it was in the last CBO baseline. But actually, Medicare spending over the next 10 years is projected to go down. Uh, And that's primarily because of the Inflation Reduction Act's reduction in prescription drug spending. Um, This prescription drug spending reduction means that seniors will pay less for prescription drugs, their premiums are going to go down, and their cost sharing is going to go down. Now, that Reduction in Medicare spending has been targeted as a Medicare cut, uh, but I don't think it's what a normal voter or a normal senior would consider a cut. It means they're going to be actually spending less on their health care, and the government is going to be spending less on health care because prescription drug costs are going to go down. So uh, this Medicare Advantage um, kerfuffle uh, is very similar, uh, that there are many ways to reduce Medicare Advantage spending that actually make um, the overall Medicare program uh, better off, that can reduce premiums and cost sharing. Uh, And so, it's really important that we don't get confused when we can lower federal spending and it's not necessarily a benefit cut. So, let me take the Medicare Advantage thing specifically because we've done a lot of work at the Health Savers Initiative on reducing Medicare Advantage um, spending. Uh, This is one of our mean things we look to when we want to increase trust fund solvency, because if you reduce spending in Medicare Advantage, you can help improve um, the the solvency numbers for Medicare overall. Uh, As you said, it's this uh, private insurance system within the Medicare program. Uh, Over the last 20 years, it's grown really dramatically, where about from about 15% of Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in the program to now over half of all Medicare beneficiaries get this private insurance uh, from Medicare. And it was originally designed to see whether private insurance companies can administer Medicare benefits more cheaply than traditional fee-for-service Medicare, either by competition among the insurance companies or by using um, insurance company tools like narrow networks of doctors, or uh, prior authorization, or other benefit management, if if they could do that less expensively than the government. So, that that sets up what I consider to be one of the great budget travesties of uh, of the last uh, 10 years, because we actually found that these private companies can provide benefits more cheaply uh, to uh, Medicare beneficiaries. And they can do so while feeding some of those savings back into better benefits for dental insurance, vision insurance, hearing insurance, lower premiums, lower out-of-pocket costs for for beneficiaries. Uh, And and we we found out that that is one tool you can use to to reduce um, healthcare spending. The big problem is that the federal government has not shared in any of those savings. They've been plowed back into better benefits and into higher insurance company profits to where now The government spends more to insure someone through Medicare Advantage than it does to insure someone through traditional Medicare. Uh, And this is a big problem. We consider these payments to Medicare Advantage plans overpayments because uh, these insurance plans have figured out how to gain the system, get more payments from the federal government. So if the federal government does not share in their savings, it's instead going to extra benefits and higher profits.
4: So, Josh, let me ask you a little bit of a question about because I dealt with this problem when I worked on Capitol Hill for a member from Tucson, Arizona. This was in the late '90s, early 2000s, and we had an issue there where we had lots of these Medicare Advantage plans that were exiting the market because they found that these networks they were having to pay, you know, commercial market rates to doctors and visit hospitals, et cetera, not the Medicare rates. And so they would go; these plans, these HMOs, for example, would go to the federal government and say, "Hey, if you want Medicare Advantage," to continue to survive, for example, in Tucson, Arizona, you need to give us a bigger capitated payment because our costs are higher than yours. We have to pay commercial market rates to our physicians and hospitals. But it sounds like what you're saying right now is that's not the case, that they're actually able to provide these services cheaper. Is it because the average Medicare Advantage you know, the senior citizen is healthier? than your your typical Medicare beneficiary. I'm just, I'm wondering about the mismatch between, hey, if we want this network to be viable, we need to pay private market rates. But then on the other hand, we know that they're making enormous profits off of Medicare Advantage. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on here.
3: So what we've found over time is that Medicare Advantage plans tend to pay physicians and hospitals about the same rates as traditional Medicare now does. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is one advantage these private insurance companies have Over private insurance companies outside of Medicare for Affordable Care Act or employer sponsored health insurance, where the payment rates are much higher uh, because it's um, commercial insurance instead of tied to Medicare, which is able to set their prices. So that's not really where um, they've now been able to save. And then your other question really gets at um, the issue. I I think over time, Medicare Advantage, the Medicare Advantage population has been either similar to traditional fee-for-service Medicare in terms of health status, or maybe a little bit healthier uh, relative to traditional Medicare fee-for-service, but they're paid substantially higher uh, relative to Medicare fee-for-service because the insurance plans are able to make their patients seem sicker and garner higher payments. And this is really the key part of the overpayment problem, that um, because of uh, this risk score gaming, we call it coding intensity. I was going to say, is this lot- up <laughs> Yeah, they, they up-code and code more, um, more diagnoses on every patient's record, making their patients look sicker than they would in traditional fee-for-service, where doctors don't really have to code um, your health status other than for the very specific problem they're being paid for, because it's fee-for-service. Um, So, over time, they've managed to gain this. And and our estimates are about 17 to 20% of their payment comes from this upcoding, which is a huge amount of money. So, when we look at the current controversy, so we estimate that having that coding intensity problem fixed entirely over a 10-year baseline would save about $350 billion. So, just for perspective, there's a current controversy over whether Medicare can go back and look at past patient records to try and see where this upcoding is happening through what we call risk adjustment audits. And the estimate is that CMS could save about $4 billion by going back and looking uh, to kind of validate these codes. So that's $4 billion of what we estimate is about a $350 billion um, overpayment. And Uh, Yet that has led um, the insurance industry and members of Congress to attack uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services for trying to cut Medicare advantage uh, and scare seniors. Uh, And this is a a huge problem. You know, both of you have been around the budget world for a long time, and we often um, get very upset when politicians say they want to cut waste, fraud, and abuse as the main way to save money in the federal budget, right? And we... We say that they need to put specifics on the table instead of just saying waste, fraud, and abuse. However, over time, they have forced the administration over past administrations to figure out ways to actually get at waste, fraud, and abuse. And this is a perfect example of a way to get at waste, fraud, and abuse. It would save about $4 billion. Uh, we actually think the potential could be much higher savings, 12 to $20 billion, but they actually gave insurance companies a break and let them off the hook for past waste fraud and abuse. They're only targeting like the most recent five years. um, And still uh, their uh, politicians and CMS are being attacked for cutting Medicare Advantage. um, And uh, it's just a, a huge problem. If we can't save money on this kind of thing, we have no hope for the federal budget going forward, because for once we found waste, fraud, and abuse that we could actually get at, <laughs> right. and still it's being demagogued uh, by uh, members of Congress in the insurance in- industry. And honestly, the insurance industry, it's no surprise, but politicians uh, and members of Congress and policymakers in general should know better than to demagogue this kind of thing, and yet that's what they're doing.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're discussing health care and the federal budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman is joining me and our guest, uh, Dr. Josh Gordon, Director of Health Policy for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where he leads the CRFB's Health Savers Initiative. Josh, we've been talking about Medicare Advantage, and- um, some of the controversies uh, about whether it's being cut or or increased. One of the issues that comes up is the uh, payment scheduled payment increase to the Medicare Advantage plans for 2024, which is uh, set to be one percent. And that's being argued as as a big cut. Can you explain the context behind that?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is something else that the center for Medicare and Medicaid services does every year to kind of manage the Medicare advantage program that it sets its payment rate every year, based on what it anticipates it will spend in Medicare fee for service. Uh, This is a way to kind of have an annual looking at um, spending relative to demographics and what's happening in health inflation, what's happening in the overall economy. Uh, And so for 2024, The projection is that spending is going to go up by about 1% for plans. Last year, uh, the payments went up by 8.5%. The year before, the payments went up by about 4%. So it is a a slower um, growth in payments than Medicare Advantage plans have seen over the last two years. Uh, But again, um, it's going up by 1%. It's it's not a cut, even if it was um, a, a slight cut or... Uh, or even with with what payments were last year, it still averages out to pretty uh, decent increases in payments over the last three years. And uh, under no circumstance would we consider that a cut. And it's certainly not something the administration is doing to reduce Medicare beneficiary benefits. This is the annual management of the program. Again, if we want good government, we want um, our agencies to actually look at what's happening on the ground and then make the proper payment relative to what's happening on the ground. Uh, and we shouldn't be um, arguing that those are uh, in any way some kind of sinister cuts um, to. Well, uh, the and, and context, Medicare too, population.
1: is that, as you explained in the last segment, the, the plans are being paid more per beneficiary than traditional Medicare, which wasn't the point of having these Medicare Advantage uh, plans. Correct. Uh, well, um, March 9th is a date set for the president's budget. Tory, you want to? Um, Get into that.
4: Yeah, no, I. we've got uh, President Biden is supposed to uh, submit his budget to Congress on March 9th. Josh, I was wondering if you expect anything on healthcare to be in there.
3: Well, I, I mean, the, the one thing I am looking forward to seeing is in the State of the Union address. Um, President Biden said that he had a plan to extend the solvency of the Medicare trust fund for about two decades, uh, which would be a pretty substantial um, increase. My suspicion is that that's going to be almost entirely on the uh, revenue side. Um, Past uh, Biden budgets have had proposals to uh, increase some of the taxes that flow into the um, Medicare trust fund. So uh, I'm assuming a a large part of that will be that. Uh, The one thing that President Biden's budgets have not done, which his two predecessors did do, uh, both President Trump and President Obama had a package of actual Healthcare savings, where they are trying to reduce um, healthcare spending or at least the growth of healthcare spending, um, bipartisan ideas that appeared in both the Obama and Trump budgets. And the uh, Biden administration has not included those ideas in their last couple of budgets. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, whether they actually put something on paper that seriously tries to grapple with the growth in healthcare costs and not just shifting revenue uh, into the Medicare trust fund.
4: If you could pick one proposal to pitch to President Biden to put in his budget, what would you pitch?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest uh, one to suggest, and this is something that uh, our Health Savers Initiative just put a new issue brief out about uh, last week, uh, and that is moving Medicare to site-neutral payments. Uh, Right now, uh, Medicare pays different rates, whether you get uh, a simple procedure in your uh, physician's office versus in a hospital outpatient department or an um, ambulatory surgery center and uh, we really think that uh, these payments should be the same across the board because these payment differentials for common services that could pr- be provided easily uh, in either location um, these payment differentials have been encouraging increased consolidation um, in the hospitals as they buy up physician practices and what that does—that increased consolidation—gives these large hospital systems a huge amount of market power to raise all uh, prices for all of the things we pay for in healthcare, in, in the commercial insurance market, specifically uh, where um, you know uh, we pay three to four hundred percent of Medicare rates for um, kind of uh, a lot of the things that we um, get treatment for. Uh, in hospital outpatient departments, uh, and this is um, just a big uh, problem. So, uh, we think the easiest thing w- could save about $150 billion is move Medicare to site-neutral payments, and uh, like a lot of changes to Medicare, if you reform Medicare uh, in this way, it can actually encourage commercial insurance uh, to take on the same sort of policies, because a lot of times commercial insurance base their payments on Medicare rates. So, having Um, Medicare move to site neutral payments could encourage movement to commercial insurance. And then our most recent brief also talks about ways to change commercial insurance billing to also encourage commercial insurance uh, plans to move to site neutral payments. So this is a big problem. There's been bipartisan support for changes in Medicare uh, over the last decade. And we think it's time to actually get it done. And seeing it in President Biden's budget would be a good Uh, step towards putting it on the table again for Congress. Got it. President
4: Biden, if you're listening, got a good idea right here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Anything uh,
1: that you're working on, uh, on the health savers initiative that uh, we can look for?
3: Any big savings initiatives? Uh, Well, I mean, the main thing, since we just finished this uh, commercial insurance analysis is to kind of spread the word and uh, do podcasts like yours and visit offices on the Hill uh, to convince them that this is, uh, something that they, uh, really should look at. And, and, you know, we also spend a lot of time talking about Medicare Advantage savings because again, it, it, it is one of the, um, most stark examples of a way to save the federal government money to extend the life of the social security or of the Medicare trust fund, excuse me. Uh, and, uh, so that's that. Those are the things we're most focused on: site neutral payments and Medicare Advantage.
1: You know, you you mentioned going up to the hill. I mean, do do, do people get that that you meet with? I mean, because yeah, you know, these are these should be relatively non controversial things uh, that would produce savings, which is what we want: a more efficient healthcare system. And uh, what what's the pushback that you or do you get pushback?
3: Um, I mean, this is. Maybe something that your listeners would really um, find interesting that a, a lot of times to make these changes, it takes a lot of work uh, before government changes are ever made, before legislation passes. And we've spent a long time educating policymakers on these two things, particularly Medicare Advantage and site neutral payments. And things just get tied up in the legislative process. It's very hard to get uh, anything passed. Although we worked a lot on prescription drug reforms and and, um, the Inflation Reduction Act actually included some of those reforms and some savings. So uh, I'm very optimistic that these areas uh, will be uh, addressed. I think what happens is what you're seeing right now. All it takes is a few demagogues plus a very powerful special interest uh, to combine, uh, to make what seem like common sense solutions appear very scary to politicians who have to run for re-election. So our job as researchers and analysts is to um, continue to go back to the Hill to convince them that these changes will not harm Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, The site neutral payment change would dramatically reduce insurance premiums for Medicare beneficiaries and for all of us who get employer-sponsored insurance. Uh, And we just have to keep going back and back and educating and uh, we often get a really good reception, but uh, getting something through Congress is just uh, very I'd difficult. Say it's,
1: it's, it's tough when you've got some interest spending millions, and I mean tens of millions of ads uh, for ads targeting the D.C. area. But, uh, you know, the, we living in the D.C. Uh, television audience get get these ads constantly on the news show about how they're going to cut uh, Medicare Advantage. And, you know, as you've gone through, there's a. That's a you know, you don't necessarily um, I mean, it's not necessarily cuts. And there are reasons why people are why Medicare Advantage is popular. And um, part of that is that the payments are, you know, the, the plans are
3: overpaid <laughs> for. uh Bob, I, I never thought something I worked on would be targeted in a Super Bowl ad. But uh, <laughs> that is actually, that's what happened. And uh we 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 just have to. Keep working. Keep it's, it's
1: hard. It's really hard to preach in the gospel. Upstream. Yeah, yeah. When you're uh, swimming upstream against Super Bowl ads. But anyway, that's all the time we uh, have for this week. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Josh Gordon, of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget for his insights on health care. And we've been talking a lot about Medicare Advantage. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Please tune in again next week when we'll have another edition of Facing the Future.